Let's pray. Lord, the purpose for all things, the purpose of salvation is your glory. And we are a means to your end. Our salvation is a means to your end. Our lives on this earth as your representatives are a means again to your end. And that is the glory of your name. Help us this morning in the text before us to understand again that that is the purpose of our being, of our existence, of your gift of salvation. It is for your glory. May we learn to be what we are, to shine as we are, as a blood-bought people, for the glory of the name that is above all names, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, all. If you would, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter. If you're visiting with us this morning... We want to welcome you, and let you know that we're in the middle of a study of the Sermon on the Mount, and last time that we were together, we concluded the study of the Beatitudes, and we proceed this morning in looking in verses 13 to 16. So let me read the text, and we'll look at it with our remaining time this morning. This then, the word of God, reads, beginning in verse 13, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ on the hills of Galilee, where he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And this ends the reading of God's word this morning. Now, as I said, last time we were together, we concluded the study of the Beatitudes, which is the introductory portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Here now in verses 13 to 16 are transitional verses that bring us into the body of this glorious sermon. And the theme of Jesus' message this morning, beloved, is the relationship between the Christian and the world. Here then is our main point this morning. Your life may very well be the most visible, single opportunity for someone to see the reality, the power, and the true nature of God put on display. 
The words of Jesus in verses 13 to 16 remind us that the world is watching. And we must ask ourselves, as they are watching, what do they see? And what's at stake is the ascribed glory of God. As a redeemed people, as a saved sinner, as a purchased church, his purchased possession, we are salt, we are light. And the end of all things is what? The glory of God. Your life, your redeemed life, is for the sake of God's glory. Now, we must remember the context, remember the scene here. Uh, Jesus is preaching before a, a very large crowd that is following him throughout the hills of Galilee. And at the end of chapter 4 tells us that great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is a mass mob. Now, it's very exciting to follow a man like this, uh, who's basically eradicating disease from throughout the land. And at this point, it's a very popular thing to follow this man. So this informs us that there are really two audiences in attendance here before the Lord. You have his disciples, in other words, true believers, for whom he is called to follow him, along with those who are mesmerized by miracles. They're simply overhearing a message at this point. So Jesus is speaking to those that are his own, those that he himself will own, those that will come to saving faith through him and will be recipients of his atoning sacrifice on the cross. So this sermon is directed to the recipients of his kingdom, kingdom heirs, in other words, his church. Verses 10 to 12 we looked at last time, uh, point out for us the stark reality of being a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that living a devoted life to the Lord Jesus can indeed be very hazardous to your earthly health. And Jesus warns these followers that such devotion and faithfulness can actually become very painful, very dangerous, So his teaching, we see, is becoming rather distinct. It's very restricted. It's becoming very personal and discriminatory at this point. He's making it clear that there are consequences for faithfulness as his kingdom heirs. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yours is what? The kingdom. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Yours is the kingdom. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, he said. In other words, the world is going to oppose you because of him. Now, knowing that the world is opposed to Christ and his people, we, as the people of Christ, are faced with two temptations. From this point forward to this day and beyond, we are tempted in two different ways when we understand the cost of following Christ. Number one is to withdraw from the world. There have been uh, some throughout time who think that uh, 
the fear of becoming like the world or the fear of receiving persecution from the world, we ought to gather together, buy a piece of land, raise our own crops, live by our own rules, and just let the world go its way. This is what we know as monasticism. And even so, most Christians today wouldn't even think for a moment of entering a monastery type of lifestyle. They do, nevertheless, seem to withdraw from the world and to go undercover, if you will, as a follower of Jesus Christ. They've decided to isolate themselves from the opposition of the world. That's one temptation. The other temptation for the Christian uh, to a world that is opposed to them is compromise. If the world hates us for who we are because of Christ, one sure way to get along is to give in at a few points. We don't want to appear overly distinctive or too you know, dogmatic with regard to this gospel, so they compromise. So here then, isolation and compromise are both temptations uh, that every generation of Christians have faced and will face until the glorious return of our Lord comes upon us. Now as we contemplate what the proper, proper relationship to the world is, we have to keep these things in mind. And if the Lord's message ended with verse 12, it would almost seem rather fatalistic, wouldn't it? Notice. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so, they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're like, kind of, ay, ay, ay. So I'm going to be persecuted. So I need to rejoice in my persecution, remembering that prophets were put to death for the name of Christ. But he doesn't leave us there. He soothes the reality of suffering with this, beloved, the power of influence within the world in which we dwell. That you are an influence. And he builds off the Beatitudes here and demonstrates for us both the direct and indirect influence that his people have on a decaying, dying, and dead, already spiritually dead world. Darkness. And then Jesus goes on to masterfully use imagery that is common to every household. Salt and light. Salt and light. Influence within a world that is defiled and dark. And that's where salt and light come into play here in this part of the sermon. Which is to say, this is where our lives come into play on any given day. Now remember, Jesus has moved from the third person of the Beatitudes to the second person. And he's transitioning into the full body of the sermon and he moves from uh, verse 10 where he says, blessed are those, third person, to verse 11, blessed are you. You, when you're persecuted. You is emphatic. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You followers and none others. Only my followers are salt and are light. You, beloved, in Christ this morning, emphatic you, emphatic you, emphatic you. You are salt, you are light. This is what you are. 
showing us that a transformed life is a very powerful thing in the hands of God. Very powerful. Now, think about this. This crowd was, that was following Jesus was made up pro- predominantly of very common people. Common people like me, common people like you. And Jesus here says, you are this. This is what you are. You're salt and light. Simple people used by God in a way that is beyond their comprehension. Beloved, simple people used by God that is beyond our comprehension. We'll simply embrace the reality of what Jesus is saying here to us this morning. So the Lord's words, you are salt, you are light, are not only a fixed reality, but also, beloved, for us are a great encouragement. Notice in verses 10 to 12, Jesus says, this is how the world sees you. They see you as non-essential, they see you as difficult, and they see you as killable. Expendable. That's how the world views those that follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, let me tell you what I think of you. You are the stabilizer that keeps my judgment from coming upon this world immediately. The world thinks nothing of you, but I think of you as my preservative. He's declaring this to those that are his. So that, beloved, ought to be the controlling factor of our lives as we walk through this world. That we are a preserving reality to this decaying world. We are the source of light to the darkness. This is what he says you are. Now, nothing, if you think about this, nothing captures uh, the attention of a defiled and dark world more than the people of God. Who are salt, to the defilement, and light, to the darkness. And sometimes, as you know, that type of influence will not be well received, and that's what he's been preparing us for up to this point. But other times, beloved, when you least expect it, God is drawing people out from the darkness and to the light, out of defilement, by way of preservation. When they see your life, and they desire to know why you have hope, to want to know why you're so content, to know, want to know why you have such a hopeful expectation in something that is unseen and eternal. So they inquire of you about him. So living a life of, of simple faith, simple devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ forces the world to face the emptiness of everything that they live for. Because deep down they're hopeless. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Fame. It doesn't matter. It's emptiness. Solomon said, vanity of vanities, all is what? It's vanity. It's like grasping for the wind. And God, by his grace, will bring someone to this point and has in their midst the preserving element of life and a light source that is a secondary light source, that's you, his church. Reminding them that there must be something more to all of this. So Jesus uses two images here to illustrate how disciples are to function in the world. Two symbols to describe the influence of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is that of salt. 
salt. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, during ancient times, man's existence revolved around the availability of salt. It was essential to life then, just as it is for us this very day. You don't have salt in your diet, you will, you will die. We need salt to survive. Only in this day, it was much harder to come by. Salt was a very valuable product in this day. Sometimes Roman soldiers were even paid in salt. And if they weren't worthy of their uh, pay, uh, they would be referred to as not being worthy of their what? Of their salt. So it was a very precious commodity. And the most vital application, as you know, to salt in the ancient world was that of a preservative. It was used to preserve. It, it delayed the decay of perishable foods like meat and fish. And there were two ways of eating meat in this day. You either consumed it shortly after the kill, or you rubbed salt in it, you packed it into salt to preserve it for a couple days. If you went on a trip and you were going to take any kind of meat with you, you would take it in a dried out form, salted form, kind of like jerky. And that day, they would carry fish, and a pickled fish, like the boy who had the fish and the bread, when Jesus multiplied, multiplied the fish and the bread, he had pickled fish with him. This is the only way to preserve it. So the metaphor here of salt being used as a preservative has been used with respect to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. A preservation for which is good and true. Your life as a believer, regardless of how long you've been saved, regardless of how little you know, whether you realize it or not, puts the world into check. Puts the decaying aspect of this culture into check when they see or experience the preserving factor of Christ in and through your life, which I'll, which I'll explain in a bit. Now, salt in this day was also used as an antiseptic to disinfect wounds. And if you disinfect a wound with salt, it stings, amen? It will sting a wound. So the believer's life in context to an antiseptic is pictured as a sting or an indictment to society. While at the same time serves as a cleansing agent representing none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can cleanse man from his sin. So then, your godly virtue, your integrity, your devotion to Christ makes those around you very uncomfortable because of the way you live. You live a worshipful life. So you're like a living antiseptic that stings. Your devotion to Christ has a very profound impact on those around you. Now, this doesn't mean we go out and stand on a soapbox in order to have influence on the world and preach on the corner and all of that. You can do that. But what he's talking about is simply living faithfully in response to the grace of Jesus Christ provided you in salvation. 
He's not speaking about, you know, legislating morality or becoming politically involved to make a stand for this and for this social cause or become a political kind of activist. What Jesus is referring to is faithful, consistent, abiding believers. It's very simple. An abiding believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Christians live like this, deeply embracing the God of their salvation, they are resolved to be more sincere in the expression of who they really are. That's what devoted Christians are. They're more resolved to be what they are. And what, is, and what are they? They're righteous. Because they're righteous, they live righteously. And Jesus says, you're preserving decay. And the world sees this, and they wonder, how, how can you have such joy? How can you have such hope? How can you be so peaceful? How can you be so peaceable? Now, more important than those analogies, beloved, this morning, is the fact that Jesus says that salt that loses its flavor has become tasteless. Jesus uses the metaphor of salt that has lost its flavor. Now, we can't look over this. This is, this is very important. So the metaphor is quite clear. The disciple of Jesus Christ that isn't living like a disciple, who isn't speaking, behaving, living like a follower of Christ, in other words, a Christian who isn't being what he is, Jesus said is worthless to the kingdom. Now, following the Beatitudes, that seems to be his main point as he works his way into this sermon. Once salt has lost its taste, it's no longer good for anything. Jesus says to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, Chemistry 101 reminds us that sodium chloride salt is a stable compound and therefore never loses its saltiness. Pure salt remains salt. Pure salt remains salty. Now, salt in the ancient Near East came from two main sources. Number one was the Mediterranean Sea, and by the process of evaporation would leave good old sea salt in order to preserve and season food. Now, the other source was from the marshes, the lagoons, and the rock basins of the Dead Sea. And this salt was of an inferior quality. And when we visited there, for many of you that were with us, we were told that salt from the Dead Sea tastes stale or alkaline because of its mixture with metals or uh, the other chemical compounds that are found in that area. In other words, it's contaminated. And oftentimes what appeared to be salt was only residue of these mixed impurities. So contaminated salt was good for nothing but paving a road. I also read uh, some history to where they used to patch their roofs with contaminated salt because it would harden, and that is where they had their patios, was on, was on the top of their homes. So it would be simply trampled underfoot or on a roadway. Also, true salt, once it, it's been used to cure meat it, or soaked into vit, fish, it is no longer useful. So you would simply throw it out. And Jesus said it's good for nothing to be trampled underfoot. Now, when we read this passage, we cannot neglect to see the warning here. That ultimately, that this is a warning against easy believism. This is a warning against a cheap grace 
kind of belief system, a mere confessional kind of faith that lacks genuine discipleship. A profession of said faith that claims membership of this kingdom when one is not truly in the kingdom. While one lacks the life-transforming power of God that gives evidence to saving faith. But with respect to the believer, okay, context now, true believer. Jesus has to be talking about worldliness here. Salt that has lost its savor. Which is a ridiculous fault if salt cannot lose its saltiness. And that's why I believe Jesus uses the illustration. In other words, living for things that unbelievers value or, or idolize, things or thinking that the world purposes as essential, a believer can fall prey to. To live and strive as they do, to carry on as they do, to blend in with them. You will lose your savor. You will lose your sting. So a truly saved person obviously cannot lose their salvation just as salt cannot lose its inherent saltiness, but they can lose their value of effectiveness in the world and that's what Jesus is specifically referring to here. A life that is contaminated, just like Dead Sea Salt, contaminated with sinful living, with worldliness, to simply fail to be what we are. Salt. Therefore, Jesus said, they are rendered ineffective. They're rendered ineffective. And what people who have obtained the righteousness of Christ would ever want to be rendered ineffective? Anybody here? Of course not. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1. Because of the righteousness of Christ, this is the context that is imputed to you as a believer, the grace of God and the salvation that comes through his Son, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement to your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being what? Ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having what? Forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Context believer. He's forgotten the power of the cleansing of Christ on their behalf. Their lives, therefore, have become or have the potential to become ineffective. For what? The glory of Christ. We're a means to what? His end. So the knowledge of Christ is to know that we have been saved by God's grace, declared legally righteous, living according to his grace. That, beloved, is who you are, Jesus said. That is what we are. We are salt. We are light. You is emphatic. This is you, he said. But how many Christians have become ineffective or useless by conforming their lives to the world rather than confronting the world with their lives? All of us at one time or another. You can be gripped by materialism. 
It's easy to become gripped by compromise, pragmatism, greed, lust, worldliness, rather than being a preserving influence upon a dying and decaying world. So how are we to be an influence? Simply by being distinctive, shining with the characteristics of the one who saved us, the Lord Jesus Christ, because we are salt. We are that preservative. We function as salt, which is primarily a negative uh, work of God. In other words, salt works in the negative. It, it is keeping something from getting worse. Like a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Salt also packed into meat keeps decay from spreading. He uses and empowers us to keep things from going bad to worse. Now think about this. You're a Christian. Your peers and your colleagues know that you have a strong profession of faith. This they know, this they've heard you speak about, and this they see. So you walk into a room where there's vulgar language being used. Dirty jokes, sometimes an underhanded scheme by some co-workers is, you know, uh, coming under wraps. You walk into the room and suddenly they stop talking. Right? You've been there before. They're uncomfortable to speak around you because they know that this is not the way you think. They know you wouldn't approve of their scheme. You have just functioned as salt. As a preservative. Just by being there. Your savor kept wickedness from continuing or increasing. That's what it is to be salt. Yes, they mock you. Yes, they laugh at you, perhaps. You're the butt of the jokes. You know this, you feel this, but you walk in a room and this kind of behavior stops. It's immediately obvious that you're in the room. And you know what? Salt doesn't draw attention to itself. Salt works quietly. Salt works over time. You pack it into meat when you enjoy the steak... You're not thinking about the salt that preserved it from decaying. You're just enjoying the steak. Right? Salt works quietly. You are a preserving element of God's grace in the midst of a decaying world. So the first effect here is that a godly life uh, has on this earth by the grace of God is a preserving Influence. Secondly, you, Jesus said, are the light of the world. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, as salt works quietly, primarily through our living, operating in the negative, hindering corruption from spreading, light is more positive. And it exposes the falsehood of the world's belief system day in and day out. The function of light is much more obvious than salt. Light is a metaphor for truth. Light, the scripture says, dispels darkness. 
like lies and deceit, false belief systems. So Jesus is referring to here again to his church, individuals who he says, who he declares, are the light of the world. City set on a hill. And a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, amen? Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 5, he said, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are what? Light in the world. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead do what? Expose them. Expose the world for what they are. How? Number one, beloved, by living differently than they do. Valuing and pursuing the truth of God in Christ alone, which they do not do. And by reproving and convincing through reason, by way of the scriptures, the one true God in comparison to their false worldview system. And whatever their worldview is, is wrong. So we, re- we, we reason with them from the scriptures, which is the light of God. Living as those who follow Christ, we shed light that exposes a worldview that is in opposition to Christ. You are, Jesus said, the light of the world. This is what we are. The character, the attitudes, the behaviors of God's redeemed people have an effect because they reflect grace. They reflect mercy. They reflect holiness that stands out as a light in the midst of of the darkness that you and I once dwelt in. You've been brought out of it. So light is evident. It shines through Christ's disciples into the world. Now this would have been very familiar language to those that were in attendance in the area of Galilee on this day. Because Isaiah the prophet said this, chapter 49, verse 6, I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the what? The end of the earth. To Israel, you will be a light. It's also prophesied in Isaiah 42.6. This is a promise to reach the ends of the earth. And how will they do this? Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the deep darkness, on them has light shined. That chapter goes on to say, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And who's that? The light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. The primary light. This is a messianic vision of promise that through him this light will shine. But Israel never fulfilled the universal mission in and of itself, did they? Of course not. This was fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ, true Israel. The true Israelite. The Son of God, the Lamb of God, and it will be carried on through His people. That's the promise. Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the what? I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Powerful metaphor for salvation. You are a recipient of salvation. You are a recipient of the grace of God. You've been enlightened by way of the gospel. Allowed to see, enabled to understand, enabled to embrace gospel truth. That's who you are. You are 
the light of the world. First Peter 2. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into this marvelous light. This is you. The light of the world. Notice Jesus does not say this back in chapter 5. He does not say, if you want to be my people, you will be this. He does not say, if, if you want to follow me, you'll be the light of the world. No, again, it's emphatic. You are this. You are light. Because he's the light. This is an already established, objective reality. Therefore, what does Jesus say next? Because of the reality, therefore, a city that is set on a hill cannot be what? It cannot be hidden. It's impossible to hide a city set on a hill. Now, in ancient times, uh, cities were often made out of limestone. You'd be blinding during the day with the sun beating down on limestone. You, they didn't have shades like we do. But at night, this, the, the, this city would uh, shed its light by the reflection of the torches or the lamps within the city. So from a distance, you know where the cities are. And he also says, look, a person, when he lights a lamp, he sets it on a lampstand. It be, would be ridiculous for a man or a woman to light a lamp and then put a bowl over it. It was a peck measure, which is like a little bowl to quench the little flame. He said, no. When you light a lamp, this was like a genie lamp, uh, I guess, would be kind of like a genie lamp, saucer-like lamp. Um, it has a wick on one end, a hole at the other, and it's filled with oil. You would light the lamp, and in this day, most people lived in a one-room home. They would light it and set it on a lampstand that either protruded out of the wall or on a, a uh, column in the middle of the room, which held up the roof, and they would have a little shelf there, and they would set it up in order to get ready to go to bed. He said, you wouldn't light it and then cover it up. That would be senseless. And as senseless as it is to light a lamp and put a cover over it, it is just as senseless for someone who claims allegiance to Christ to give no demonstration of it whatsoever. So the application for us to this is quite simple. God did not save us for the purpose of hiding his salvation in either mediocrity or compromise. Followers of Christ are to be both visible and radiant because we can. Because he lives in us. Because he empowers us to be such and to do such. Now, Christ, of course, is the true primary light to the world, whereas we, as his believers, are light in a secondary or diverse sense, right? He's the sun and we're the moon. And the moon at night simply is reflecting the sunlight. He is the light lighting. You are the light lighted. And apart from Christ, they cannot shine. So Jesus says to light a lamp and then place it in a basket would be unthinkable. And notice he makes his point emphatically clear here. Notice, this is an imperative now. This is a command to the believer. A command. Let your light shine before 
men. That is a command for us this morning. So there you have the salt. There you have the light. Notice the purpose of which. Next verse. So that. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, by your works, beloved, that they might see and by which they themselves might come to glorify the Father. How? Being drawn by him through your life for the sake of saving their life, which glorifies God. Because what's at stake here is the glory of God so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The goal is the glory of God. Salvation comes to us by what? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For what? The glory of God alone. So please, beloved, be careful not to confuse the grace of salvation with the works of a saved life. Nowadays, anytime a Christian hears works, they're, oh, there we go with works again. No, it is salvation by grace. Never confuse grace which comes to us freely and goes out to produce works of God in Christ through us. Because you know why you should never confuse the two? Because Scripture never confuses the two. James does not contradict Paul. Paul does not contradict James. Because of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, go be what you are. That is the imperative. That is the command. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify who? You? No. God. There's no confusion in Scripture between the grace of salvation and the fruit thereof. Salvation never comes by works. Again, salvation never comes by works, but it always goes to bear fruit. That is the sanctifying reality of justification by faith alone. Faith alone. A transformed life bears evidence of its transformation. It can be no other way. And notice, good works, they're not for the purpose of drawing attention to the worker. This isn't to make you look good. It's not to make me look good. But it's for the purpose of drawing the world's attention to their creator. They're also created by him. They're also made in his image. Yet they dwell in darkness. So it bears witness of their creator. And it bears witness of the savior of the bride. You who are salt. You who are light. So the defining mark of God's people is that they shine as his people. A light that is undeniably bright, just as salt is undeniably salty. This, he says, is what you are. The light that we are to let shine is the light that we are. The salt that is to savor is the salt that we are. That's the command of Jesus here. So Jesus says, since you are the light of the world, I command you, let your light shine shine if it's under a basket this morning just remember this song 
This little light of mine, what? I'm going to let it shine. Put it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. So what do we see here, beloved? Quite simply, we see a connection of what is on the inside to that which is to be displayed on the outside. A movement in progression from the internal to the external. In other words, salt the earth is the salt that you are. Shine with the light that you are. Don't go do this in order to be called light. You are already light, therefore shine. And what do we draw near to in order to shine more brightly, beloved? Law or grace? Grace, the cross, Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the power of Christ. You draw near to him relationally, the light just shines. The salt begins to savor. It begins to preserve and you won't even know that you're having an effect like that. Because when you're focused on him instead of the law, the works are made visible to those around us and God gets the glory, period, whether they accept it or not. So good works are not who we are, but rather reveal whose we are. And as it's been said, the good word without the good walk is of no avail. So as I close up here, the two greatest detriments to our effectiveness for the glory of God is this, either selfishness or worldliness. To isolate ourselves from the world or to compromise with the world, one or the other, will strike a blow against the glory of God. This is ascribed glory. This is glory that is due his name, not the intrinsic glory, because there's nothing you can do or can't do that will take away the inscribed glory of God, or the intrinsic glory of God. This is ascribed glory. In other words, glory due to him. Some people will say this. You know, this is as devoted as I choose to be. You know, I have certain goals in life. I'm aspiring towards these. And if I'm going to be overly dogmatic or too distinctive in my Christianity, it's going to hinder my success to reach the next level. So you go undercover if there is such a thing as an undercover Christian. That's self-preservation. That's hiding the light under a basket. Others, they'll say, I enjoy walking as close to the line of compromise as I can. Number one, it's fun. And it is fun to our humanness. It is fun to our flesh. But, you know, I want, I want the world to see that I'm not too much different than they are. I mean, after all, I'm free in Christ. I'm simply exercising my Christian liberty, so don't judge me. But that, beloved, is not Christian freedom if it leads you to losing your savor. Kelvin said this, quote, When men have lost by their carelessness that savor, which they obtain by the grace of God, there's no further remedy. The saver's gone. 
Again, to close, your life may very well be the most visible single opportunity for someone to see the reality, the power, and the new true nature of God put on display. This is our call. This is our life because this is who we are, salt and light. So we must ask ourselves this morning, as they're watching, what do they see? A life that is a testimony of God's grace a testimony of God's grace or a strike against it? May we, beloved, be the preserving salt that we are. May we be the undeniable light that we are as recipients of God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so that what? So that our good works may be seen for the purpose of what? The glory of God alone. Jesus is simply saying this. Live your life in such a way. Be who you are so that the world will take notice of your God. Amen? Let us remember this week, because of the grace of God in Christ Jesus, which enables us, may we simply be what we are. Amen? Let's pray. Holy Father, mighty God. Thank you for the instructions of Scripture. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for the preaching of the greatest preacher that has ever walked this earth. Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we come to a deeper understanding and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, may the grace and knowledge of our Savior drive us to desire, according to that grace, to be exactly what we are, to reflect whose we are, as a salt that savors and a light that illumines. Lord, I pray for your people this morning, every one of us, beginning with myself, my dear brothers and sisters, that you'll grant us the ever-awakening grace and the reality of that grace and the reality of the power and the person who indwells us to live by that power. I pray for our relationships at work, be they at school or at home, with unbelieving friends, family, or co-workers, that I pray everyone in here would experience these people taking notice of the preserving power of your people in this room. That their savor would be tasted. That it would be felt. And that they would be given the opportunity to illumine the light of the true gospel upon the false ideals of the world. That we might see your name glorified in witnessing the lost come to faith. But we need grace to do this and power beyond ourselves. So may you enable your people this day, this week, to be what we are so that you will be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.